Chapter 20 American Fish, American Fishermen Cutting the Foreigners Loose Once the Magnuson Act passed into law in 1976, it took until 1991 to fully Americanize the Alaska groundfish resource. The legislation allowed for a phased takeover as U.S. catcher vessels and processors struggled to acquire the fishing power, the processing technology, and the market share to survive. Once the shift began in the mid-80s, the first gains were made in the harvesting sector, where U.S. fishing vessels displaced foreign boats catching pollock, cod, rockfish, and flatfish. As U.S. catcher boats began the wave of change, the American processing sector became bogged down in a war for resource access and market share. The combatants were divided into three processing sectors, shore-based plants, mothership operations, and catcher processors. Shore-based plants and motherships required fleets of catcher vessels to feed their operations. Catcher processors harvested their own fish. Early on, there was plenty of fish available for all sectors. But as foreign entities were forced by the new law to transfer technology and invest in U.S. operations, and as America's own ingenuity kicked in, everyone on the U.S. side got better and better at what they did. Soon, what appeared to have been an infinite supply of raw material was being gobbled up faster and faster each year. As fishery managers shortened fishing seasons to protect the productivity of the resource, the race for raw material became even more frantic. Forward-thinking fishery managers and industry representatives knew it couldn't last and began a series of meetings to consider the future of groundfish and, in fact, established a committee of that name. Various options for rationalizing the future were stirred around in discussions, and one idea that kept floating to the top was a system of individual fishing quotas known as IFQs that would grant catch shares to established vessels, vessel owners, and license holders. Alaska halibut and sablefish longliners were the first to embrace the system in 1995. Specific shares of the overall halibut and sablefish quotas were awarded to vessel owners based on their historic catches. Other variations of the quota share concept under consideration for other species would award fishing quotas or separate processing quotas to established processors. Shares would be awarded to qualified participants based on their historical participation, typically measured by the volume of fish harvested or processed by each entity during a designated window of qualifying years. While the ultimate goal of the so-called rationalization was to end the race for fish and overcapitalization of the harvesting and processing sectors, the major players quickly understood that establishing history in the form of harvesting and processing volume was the key to earning future quota shares. Those with more history would ultimately be rewarded with a larger share of the future pie. So when the yellow light came on, signaling the eventual end of the race for fish, the result was that everyone stepped harder on the gas pedal in hopes of qualifying additional vessels and racking up additional tonnage. Those who ended up with the most quota would be able to use it themselves, sell it to others, or lease it, and the ultimate value would be billions of dollars. While fishermen and processors raced around the North Pacific trying to harvest more tonnage faster than the next guy, their legal representatives and lobbyists 
twisted arms at the North Pacific Fishery Management Council and in the halls of Congress to gerrymander qualifying years and torque the definition of history to their best advantage. The end game was to leverage themselves in and leverage their competitors out of the initial quota allocation. It was not a charitable time. Fresh out of University of Washington Law School, the man who would soon become Trident Seafood's corporate attorney in charge of government affairs waltzed right into the middle of the battleground before he realized there was even a fish fight. I worked my way through college and University of Washington Law School at Wards Cove Cannery in Ketchikan, Alaska, Joe Plesher began. A friend of my father drove a truck for them, and he recommended that I apply for a summer job as a store boy at the cannery. I was 17 years old. I got the job, and I was the store boy at the cannery for two years. I worked as a deckhand on a tender for two more years, as engineer for a year, and eventually skippered the tender. It was a wooden power scow named the Petrel. After law school, I worked for a year as a public defender in Seattle and married a woman from Ketchikan. About the same time, I applied for a job with Senator Frank Murkowski. I got the job and went back east to work for the senator in 1983. Initially, I was a legislative assistant, but I quickly took over the fishing issues because they needed somebody to do it, and the senator knew I had a background working in the salmon industry. As is often the case, a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing and a surprise asset at the same time. Sometimes, the guy who fixes an extension cord on one occasion gets drafted as the chief electrician. It either works out or it doesn't. Plesha was a good student who already knew something about commercial salmon fishing, and he had a law degree. So when implementing legislation was circulating in Washington, D.C. to move foreign fleets out of the U.S. exclusive economic zone, Plesha was drafted as the fisheries advisor to a U.S. senator from Alaska. What he hadn't learned about international fisheries politics aboard the Power Scout Petrel, he was destined to learn quickly in the nation's capital, working for Senator Murkowski and the shadow of the American icon, Ted Stevens. I didn't even know there was a 200-mile bill, Plesher recalled. I had no background in it whatsoever, but the work wasn't all that complicated. After a year and a half, the Commerce Committee offered me a job working for Senator Stevens on the Subcommittee for Oceans. I did that for another couple of years and then returned to Seattle to work at Reed McClure Law Firm. I actually hated working for a law firm because you measure your life in six-minute increments and somebody gets the bill. I wasn't very good at that, Plushes said. But that's where I first met Chuck. I began working for the firm in December of 1986. By September of 87, Chuck offered me a job and I took it. Plush's job at Reed McClure had been to provide legal advice to the USA Coalition, a group of U.S. processing interests including Trident Seafoods, Arctic Alaska Seafoods, Icicle Seafoods, and Ward's Cove Packing. The four company presidents were respectively Chuck Bundren, Terry Baker, Bob Brophy, and Alec Brindle. They were known in the industry as the killer bees, Plesher recalled, and they wanted to pass legislation known as the Anti-Reflagging Act to prohibit reflagging of foreign boats. Prior to the passage of that bill in 1987, Plesher explained, the law allowed that foreign-flagged factory fishing vessels could be reflagged as vessels of the United States. 
They could not fish, but they could process fish in U.S. waters. So you could have taken a vessel from the foreign fleet that was primarily processing joint venture fish at the time and simply formed a U.S. corporation that was completely foreign-owned, reflagged the vessel as a vessel of the United States, and continued to operate in U.S. waters. Chuck and other people were interested in fully Americanizing the fishery and prohibiting that from happening. The central issue was that the Magnuson Act had engineered a phased-in American takeover of fishing activity in the 200-mile EEZ. Once U.S. fishing vessels could demonstrate their capacity to harvest all the available quota, foreign-flagged fishing vessels would be kicked out. U.S. law already prohibited the reflagging of foreign fishing vessels as U.S. fishing vessels, so there was no danger that the foreign catcher fleet could simply reflag as U.S. fishing vessels and continue harvesting fish. But a loophole existed for processing vessels, and American processors like Bundrant were working very hard to develop their own American-owned processing capacity. If a Japanese or Korean firm could create a shell corporation in the U.S. and reflag their existing motherships, they could slide across the 200-mile boundary and preempt the development of the fledgling U.S. industry. Foreign interests could have stationed motherships in front of Adak, Dutch Harbor, Akatan, Sandpoint, and Kodiak and purchased ground fish directly from U.S. catcher boats, continuing their joint venture operations into perpetuity. This would have stymied the final stage of the Americanization process by blocking development of the U.S. processing sector. There was a council meeting in 1986 where this came to a head, Plesher recalled. I was working on Capitol Hill, and I got a letter signed by Bart Eaton, Oscar Dyson, Terry Baker, and some others making Congress aware of this possibility. I was working for Murkowski, and he offered the first bill prohibiting the reflagging of foreign vessels, but not everyone supported it. There was a lot of belief, especially by the guys fishing in the JV fleet, that reflagging was a good thing. If it was allowed, they could keep doing what they were doing without having to deliver on shore. So the fishing fleet was very much in opposition to the prohibition of reflagging. They were getting paid four and a quarter cents a pound, and they thought it was just the cat's meow. And of course, they were in the pocket of the foreign-owned interests. There's no question about it. It was primarily Japan, but Korea got involved too. As Plesher noted, joint venture fishing was a sweet deal for catcher boats at the time. One reason was that the trawlers could simply pass off the cod ends of their nets to foreign motherships and never have to bring a fish aboard. The cod end is the very tail end of the funnel-shaped trawl net. It's attached in a way that it can be unzipped from the trawl, sealed off, and passed to a separate processing ship via a transfer line. A typical JV cod end could hold 20 to 30 tons of fish. By the time the mothership hooked the transfer line, the catcher boat would have another cod end attached to its trawl net. Rotating deliveries in this fashion, a fleet of catcher boats could just keep fishing and passing cod ends to the mothership as the checks piled up. No catcher vessel had to bring a fish aboard or burn fuel running to port or wait to offload. Deckhands didn't have to touch a fish and the fleet could stay right on top of a school of Pollock for weeks on end. During the heyday of JV fishing, it was possible for a deckhand on a JV catcher to make $90,000 in six weeks. Skippers and vessel owners made a lot more. So the JV habit 
was hard to kick for the sake of a shore-based processor like Bundrant, who was trying to build a stationary Pollock operation of his own at Akatan. If things were going to change, it was going to require some legislative muscle. It was particularly grating for Bundrant to know that the foreign interests supporting reflagging were the same Japanese companies that had maintained control of the groundfish resources inside the U.S. 200-mile limit for decades, Taiyo Fisheries and Nippon Suisan. Had they been able to reflag their fleet as U.S. motherships, they would have trumped Americanization and ultimately become the American processing sector. There was nothing inside the U.S. 200-mile limit that could have competed with them. After all, the foreign ships had already been built. They had already demonstrated they could handle the entire Alaska Pollock quota. Furthermore, the same companies already controlled the Japanese surimi market through import quotas, and surimi was the primary end product for Pollock producers at the time. Reflagging Japanese motherships would have created an insurmountable barrier for American startups. It would have completely changed the industry had they been allowed to do that, Plesha said. Plesha noted that prohibiting the reflagging of foreign processors was relatively easy. Only one of them was ever reflagged, the 353-foot Tenyo Maru No. 5, originally built in 1973 as a factory trawler in Nagasaki and owned and operated by Taiyo Fisheries, known globally as Maruha. The actual reflagging didn't take place until 1990 when the boat was renamed the Excellence and entered U.S. waters under the management of Alaska Joint Venture Seafoods. Ironically, one of the principals in the company was Bill Phillips, former chief of staff to Senator Ted Stevens, and it was Phillips who piloted the Tenyo Maru No. 5 right around the Anti-Reflagging Act in 1987. What proved more difficult than plugging the reflagging loophole was prohibiting the rebuilding of U.S. flagged vessels in foreign shipyards. The issue was directly addressed in the Anti-Reflagging Act, but the law contained a grandfather clause that permitted previously contracted rebuilds to be carried to completion. As the Coast Guard misinterpreted the language, a huge loophole appeared in the law that permitted Norwegian shipyards to transform a ragtag fleet of U.S.-built hulls into a giant armada of state-of-the-art factory trawlers or catcher processors, as they are commonly referred to today. Since rebuilding a U.S. hull in a foreign yard did not require reflagging, the newly transformed catcher processors were considered fishing vessels of the United States, and they could return to the U.S. EEZ to harvest and process legally. Norway saw the loophole as a golden opportunity. Once the U.S. laid claim to its EEZ, the value of its fishery resources and the value of helping develop its fishery resources became clear to Norwegian interests. Norwegian shipyards were offering 120% financing on rebuilds through Christiania Bank, an institution famous for facilitating the deals. The Norwegian shipbuilding industry and the Norwegian government were happy to assist. Norway's shipbuilding industry was considered strategically important to the nation, paralleling the aerospace industry in the U.S. Their yards and craftsmen were good at what they did, and government subsidies kept them busy when times were tough. If somebody wanted them to transform a rusty American keel into a new factory trawler, they were all too happy to oblige. The Norwegian yards built magnificent factory trawlers. 
chock full of Norwegian built equipment and everyone benefited, except competing U.S. shipyards, American fishing companies like Arctic Alaska who paid high interest rates for their own U.S. built factory trawlers, and shore-based processors like Trident Seafoods, who were struggling to make their own Pollock dreams come true. At the time, the Bering Sea was still an open access fishery, and the wave of factory trawlers from Norway was threatening to overrun everyone else in the race for fish by scooping up a huge portion of the available Pollock quota. What Japanese and Korean motherships could no longer do, thanks to the reflagging ban, the Norwegian-built factory trawlers could. Consequently, the mission of the USA coalition was to thwart both types of unfair competition. The U.S. Coast Guard's loose interpretation of the rebuilding provisions of the Anti-Reflagging Act added further insult to the injury. Under the not-so-watchful eyes of U.S. documentation officers, Norwegian builders were free to stretch the definition of a rebuild beyond the limits of reason. Speaking of one particular rebuild, Plesius said, the Acona was a classic example. It was an 85-foot university research vessel. A Norwegian shipyard turned it into the 252-foot American Triumph, one of the most modern and productive factory trawlers in the North Pacific. I think they literally cut out one beam and put it into the new boat. In similar fashion, the 500-ton State Express was transformed into the 5,000-ton, 376-foot Alaska Ocean, the largest factory trawler in the Alaska fishery. Plusha noted other irregularities in the administration of the act. The grandfather clause allowed vessel rebuilds already under contract prior to July 27, 1987 to carry forward, and when word of the cutoff date leaked out, Various enterprising people on the waterfront bought U.S. hulls of questionable value and generated what they claimed to be rebuilding contracts with Norwegian yards. Then they shopped the paperwork around to serious buyers. People recognized the value of these contracts, Plushes said, so there was a good deal of effort to have these contracts in place by the cutoff. However, the definition of a contract was also being stretched out of proportion. They were not really contracts, Plesha said. They were options. As Plesha noted, it was a Norwegian show, although some of the boats were rebuilt in other places. The Norwegians subsidized it, and Christiania Bank financed it. It was free money, for lack of a better way of saying it, and a lot of people used it. As a result, there was a huge influx of vessels to the North Pacific, and not all of them were truly American-owned. The owners had to be U.S. corporations, but shareholders did not have to be U.S. citizens. By the time the grandfathering opportunity expired, 22 foreign rebuilt vessels had sailed through the loophole and they were taking a huge bite out of the overall Pollock quota. hope that you enjoyed chapter 20, American Fish, American Fisherman. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode is released on Wednesday, July 29th. We appreciate you joining us and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams. <laughs>